0: I'm Todd Weir, host of New Books in Intellectual History, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking to the author of The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History, who is Samuel Moyne, Professor of Intellectual History at Columbia University. And uh, let me just start by saying that this is, I think, a very masterful and, and sweeping study, which gives us a survey of international law from the ancient world to the present, looking for an answer to the question, where did human rights come from, and Uh, Professor Moyne goes through several questions. Uh, Was it born of Enlightenment humanism, socialist internationalism, the horror at genocide after the Second World War, anti-colonialism, or even globalization? And in each case, Moyne answers no. Human rights has, he argues, a recent and surprising vintage. Now, I must say, I've never read a book that devoted so much space to where something wasn't and why it wasn't there. Um, yet in Moyne's explanations of the non-existence of human rights up until the 1970s, we learn a great deal not only about the importance of the nation-state to the conception of individual rights, but about the nature of historical change. So, without further ado, uh, Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And uh, I just wanted to start off with a question um, about uh, about your own interest in this topic. How did you um, come to this topic um, maybe just a bit about yourself in that context.
1: Well, it, it was you know a long and winding road. I, I trained uh, at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and in, in modern European intellectual history on on very different topics. And and when I was in graduate school in the nineteen nineties, middle of the nineteen nineties, human rights were Getting a lot of discussion in public, but not in the humanities circles in which I traveled then. But I I, I dropped out of graduate school briefly and and went to law school, and there I, I took a lot of human rights courses, um, and first uh, you know conceived a kind of personal interest in the topic, um, and it that was accidental. That was the time at which human rights were. Um, suddenly, prestigious as a, a possible language of post Cold War order, um, and I even worked at the White House one of the summer for one of the summer internships I did during law school. Ultimately, I I finished my PhD and became a, an intellectual historian um, and began to teach courses in the origins of human rights. Um, really, before I think there were such courses in history departments. Now there are a lot. And 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 the book really emerged when um, a, a kind of real field began to crystallize. Um, I started out on this project um, with a book review, actually, of Lynn Hunt's Inventing Human Rights. And I had accumulated enough ideas as a teacher that when her book appeared, I, I thought I could present a pretty different view of the topic. And it was really from that moment around 2007 that I resolved to put my other interests on hold for a bit and, and write a book in, on this topic, which is what the process that led, led to The Last Utopia.
0: Great. I, you know, as I said in the introduction, I, I, um, I, I found it fascinating that you would could spend so much time on when human rights wasn't, and um, but but you know, the reader will will find it fascinating to to go through this journey with you and find out uh, why it wasn't and so on. Um, I, I maybe you could start even with um, uh, some of the. Criticisms of, of Lynn Hunt's book. Uh, she's writing about the relationship of contemporary human rights to the French Revolution, the ideas of the rights of man. Um, that seems like a logical genealogy for the history of human rights. Um,
1: what, what argues against that? So, um, I think, I think a lot, although I, I think th- our, our, our intuition and, and Lynn Hunt's intuition about the importance of the enlightenment, um, m- maybe a bit more so than the French revolution it is, is, is still correct. Uh, I just think it, it, it's much more that it, it leaves a lot out. So it, it it's, Doing the history of human rights requires us to be very clear about what our what exactly our object is, and um, human rights could be a very very abstract moral idea that individuals have moral rights um, as as individuals, and that could be even before there are states or apart from the fact that there are states, or it could be you know from the state. Um, and if that's what we mean by human rights, then I think we we need to start actually way before the Enlightenment, um, you know, looking at the origins of the idea of an individual right, which you know most people think emerged you know sometime between the later Middle Ages and the seventeenth century, so long before. The at least the the high enlightenment and the French Revolution, but I think what Lynn Hunt and I shared is is the view that w- that idea, let's say in a in a philosopher's mind, has to matter politically. Um, but it's also there that 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 I I sort of diverge from Lynn Hunt because what I notice is that when natural rights or what came to be called les droits de l'homme in French in, after about 1750 mattered politically, it was mainly to capture or rethink sovereignty. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I mean, the easiest examples would be in the revolutions when, when the idea of natural rights or the rights of man kind of became politically important. And in the American case, where we still use natural rights in 1776, um, we understood that idea to be revolutionary. We took up arms uh, and the consequence of invoking natural rights, say in the Declaration of Independence of 1776, was for the purpose of throwing off an empire violently and founding a new state. Um, And the same was true you know, below the level of the United States at the level of the individual states like Virginia, which had, you know, a very pioneering declaration of, of rights. Obviously, the French Revolution was even more violent, um, certainly in, in the long run. And, and And again, the goal was the same initially to... Um, Make a constitutional monarchy to take power from the king and ultimately to get rid of the king. Um, And in both of these revolutions, not just the making a state a new state, but um, emancipating the nation was a central idea. And so when I reflected on these really basic facts, just any, you know, the first day of thinking about the revolutionary era, these are the central facts. It seemed to me suddenly that it couldn't be right to say that the revolutionary moment is the origin of our view of human rights, because most often we want to subordinate the state, and especially the nation state, to higher norms. Uh, And we might even appeal to international law or an international um, side of power like the United Nations um, or the United States under the color of a UN Security Council resolution to interfere with or even invade a nation state. So what, what I was looking at is how not the abstract idea change, but how the political meaning of the of the idea changed in practice. In the beginning, it seemed to be about founding na- states and nation-states, and now it's about subordinating them to other powers.
0: I, I found that argument um, very convincing, uh, compelling. I, one thing that I was um, – I, I mean, I ultimately was willing to accept your views on this as well. But, uh, you know, as a student of uh, socialism, I was um, – um, uh, you know I was a bit surprised perhaps in, upon initially reading the way you read late nineteenth century socialism that that sort of internationalism of the um you know the the revolutionary marxist workers movement um you know ultimately didn 't um shake uh, l- the way in which rights were conceived mm-hmm. um, fundamentally that, that seemed to be your argument uh, mm-hmm. could you say something about um you know, these alternative histories of rights in the, say, revolutionary movements. Absolutely.
1: Um, It's a great question. And of course, I mean, now we're talking about a topic I I could at best sideswipe along with many other fascinating ones like the history of civil liberties movements um, around the same time um, and, and which have actually stimulated a lot more research in the meantime. But I think my basic... Agenda was twofold. One was to point out that, of course, there were aspirations to have a, 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 tr- a trans or supranational politics long before our time. No one could deny that. Um, but they seem to be not based on rights. Um, now, if if we we take those socialist movements that to which you refer, um, I mean especially in so far as they w- were inspired by Karl Marx it's hard to 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 see them as as sort of straightforward rights movements I mean Marx one of his most famous um theoretical contributions is to attack the whole idea of rights um as too formal um and not let's say real enough um in their implications so so Marx is very celebrated for denouncing rights as part of the bourgeois problem rather than as part of the communist solution. Um, now it's also true that in his own life and especially in workers movements that followed, there were lots of claims about, um, workers' rights. Um, and no one would want to, to, to deny that. And, you know, or that sometimes, um, that workers phrase their demands in terms of the rights of man. Um, I mean, I think even with that point, one would want to, you know, be a good historian and check who exactly is using the language of natural rights and human rights the most. Um, was it workers, in fact? And I think there the answer is pretty clearly negative that rights were so central in the later 19th century in the North Atlantic to the defense of um, freedom of contract and the sanctity of private property that most progressives um, were sort of with Marx and thinking that we needed to attack the whole idea of natural rights in the name of, say, the common good or of collective needs. Um, And of course it's also true that workers' movements were subject to nationalism. Famously, the German socialists, um, you know, voted for war credits in 1914 in spite of, um, you know, Marxism's own belief that n- nationalism was a sham to divide the international working class against itself, um, and the German Socialist Party split, Um you know, over these sorts of issues in, in the course of World War One. So all of what you say is basically true. But my, my finding is that if we're interested in, in, again, the actual way rights claims work, they're, they're surprisingly linked to a, a nation state framework and forum um, for, for much of the 19th century and beyond.
0: Yeah, as I said, I, I did. I, I found that um, that entire argumentation line of argumentation very compelling. Uh, just before we, we go to the the actual emergence of human rights uh, yes. as a key term in international law, um, you know, one place I found that the ideas of universal human rights beyond the nation state emerge um, in the socialist. Milieu is mm-hmm. in secularist organizations, um, Interesting. and these are groups, obviously, that are, let's say, and um, place morality at the center of their of their critique. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you do talk quite a bit about the relationship of morality to human rights. Yes. Um, and you mention figures like Jacques Maritain, uh, Catholic uh, theologians of the mid twentieth century, who. Yes. Uh, perhaps later, or perhaps at the time, argue that Catholicism really offered an alternative foundation of um, universal morality and of human dignity um, beyond either uh, bourgeois individualism or socialist collectivism, as they called it. Yes, yes. Um, uh, I mean, why... Is there anything wrong with that particular uh, genealogy, or,
1: or what would be your take of that? So, I mean, I, I, you know, the the book that I wrote is is a is really a huge synthesis based on what I, you know, knew before and happened to find in the course of the short, you know, year in which I wrote wrote this, um, manuscript. So, you know, there are things that were left out, you know, largely at result of my ignorance. So, um, and I, I, think it may well be that, that, um, you know, the, the differentiated universe of, of socialist politics was one. I mean, when it comes to Catholicism, um, you know, that sort of reflects, um, Something I discovered inadvertently along the course of my own research. So I I started this book um, as as a, as a as an unreconstructed intellectual historian looking for the philosophers, um, and and maybe we'll talk a bit later about kind of method and and approach. But I mean, my main finding. Uh, in writing the book is that one couldn't write an intellectual history of human rights. Um, But when I started, it it, it dawned on me that Jacques Maritain was, um, you know, the principal and and really one of the only philosophical defenders of human rights um, in the 1940s at the time of the famous Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. So naturally, I wanted to look into who he was and why he was the only one. I mean, where were the secular liberals of the kind we have now in droves um, promoting the idea of human rights as a philosophical matter? They they didn't exist yet for some reason. So, my interest in Maritain really drove me into a, a lot of research of my own, uh, sort of to look at the history of political Catholicism um, and. Um, what I came to see as a kind of transformation of conservatism that was involved in the era between the thirties and the 1940s, um, and which is a helpful context for thinking about, um, Maritain, but also lots of others who were active around human rights. Um, so what I found just briefly is that political Catholicism, um, you know, had flirted a lot with reactionary politics in the 30s. This was well known, and Maritain himself had been a royalist, a follower of the rightist group Action Française, uh, and 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 you know wrote anti-Semitic articles in the 20s. And um, like the larger church, had to make a choice. Now he made it actually a bit earlier than the larger, um, you know, uh, uh, set of of Catholic political movements and ideologies, many of which remained, you know, profoundly illiberal through World War II until their side lost the war. Um, Maritain, having experimented with the idea of human dignity and, and eventually human rights um, in wartime, since he, his wife was born Jewish and he ended up spending the war in New York City on Fifth Avenue, he was well positioned to kind of be a, a, a leader um for the reinvention of of political Catholicism after World War II. And and central to his thought, as you say, is that human rights can be interpreted in an anti-revolutionary way. For all of the nineteenth century, the idea of human rights had been um the idea of the liberals and the, the people who wanted to bring the heritage of the French Revolution further and further across Europe through founding nation-states that protected liberal freedoms. Um, and Catholicism, due to its treatment in the French Revolution, had always denounced not just the French Revolution, but the idea of of human rights. And Maritain said, no, we can save the idea of human rights from what the revolutionaries have done with it. Um, It will be a spiritual idea. It will save us from 19th century liberal individualism, um, but it will also save us against the new enemy, which is a a materialist um, perversion of 19th century um, liberal individualism, which was communism. So he found a way at, at the moment the Cold War is beginning to pit Americans um, or at least economic liberals amongst the Americans against their Soviet foes and say, no, it's it's really religion that will distinguish the the West from the communist East. And so he reinterpreted human rights in that spirit. And I think it was it actually fairly representative of those who were enthusiastic about human rights in the 40s. And there weren't many, to be honest.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The, um, you know, I I don't want to spend too much more time on the um, this sort of first half of the book where you yes. deal with the um, you know the let's say the the prehistory uh, right, but uh, you know again to to just reemphasize I mean for for myself as a reader this argument about the this sort of relationship between individual rights and the nation state um, was the sort of linchpin to explaining why human rights couldn't emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as there were certain assumptions about the um, the absolute sovereignty of of the state, right uh, of the nation state rather, um, and and you know just as a final example, perhaps you mentioned the anti colonial struggles of the mm-hmm. post war period, and um, you really I think argue that they are the perhaps almost the best example of why this um, um, why human rights couldn't emerge because you know these were movements that were deeply committed to the principle of national sovereignty. Right, right. Uh, um, now, what I did find interesting is that when you do, and this is you know, where you have to do a bit of explaining, but where you do shift into the 1970s and you say that there's this surprising, really, uh, emergence of human rights, you your entire um, argumentation shifts and you, you effectively kind of drop this focus on national sovereignty and you introduce the notion of utopia, uh, halfway through, and, and I found that quite striking. Um, you're no longer making your argumentation principally around um, a paradigm of national sovereignty. Rather, um, you, you know, you you go into another type of causation. Uh, has more to do with with the question of utopia, social movements, and so on. Um, uh, can you say a, a bit about Absolutely. introduce introduce this notion of utopia? The book's called The Last Utopia. Absolutely. Uh, what happens in the
1: 1970s? Absolutely. So that that requires, you know, a a long response just because, uh, you know, I have to sort of, you know, cover things in in different registers. So maybe I'll I'll just start by saying that the the book is is premised on a belief of mine, which is that um, international human rights became very imaginatively forceful in our time. That's to say people believe in them. And I wanted to get at the imaginative or even utopian um, component of their appeal to us. Um, And so I I presume that if I didn't explain human rights at that level, I I would have failed. Um, So when I look back, it's not just that I'm interested in the shift from the state to the globe or human rights as part of state-making to human rights as part of constraining the state. I'm also interested in, in let's say, a parallel track, and that's um, from um, a a universe in which rights were part of changing the world to one in which they became um, more exclusively imaginative. Um, and utopian so so let me explain it 's not that rights as part of the state making I talked about in um, in in the American and French Revolution didn 't have an imaginative component, but no one would deny that th- that the the wave of state making in modern history changed the the world and the outcomes that people and you know, enjoyed or sometimes suffered under, under the regime of the the proliferation of, of states across the world. Um, and to me, the anti-colonial story and, and the, the, the decolonization of the world is, is the best evidence of that. So to me, the, the anti-colonial movement is, is more faithful to the revolutions that we've discussed than we are, because, Um, Even though we like to say that Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust gave sovereignty uh, uh, and and nationalism bad names, um, the truth is that um, actually it's after Hitler that sovereignty and, and nationalism conquered the world and were taken to the ends of the earth by decolonization. And presumably that's precisely because those who hated empire after 1945 Um, wanted what Westerners had had gotten since 1776, the nation state. It's not that they didn't want rights, but that they wanted the collective emancipation of nationalism and the nation state to give them their rights. Um, And obviously, they transformed the world more than anyone has in, in human history by destroying global empire. Um, so then, I come to the 1970s, and we we have this comparison in which human rights look very weak. You know, one of the m- most notable articles that has been written about human rights um, in, in the last couple decades is by a Yale law professor named Ona Hathaway, and she entitled her 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 famous article "Do Human Rights Treaties Make a Difference." Now, I think it's an incredibly noteworthy title because no one would ever write an article um, saying, did the, did the American and French Revolution make a difference or did nationalism in history and in anti-colonial movements make a difference? Because it's straightforward that these forces transform the world beyond recognition Um, And yet the question has to be asked about human rights, whether they've changed much more and affected the real lives of people beyond um, changing their minds or changing their imaginations. And so that's why when I came to the 70s, it's not just that I I turn away from the nation state, but I also kind of change my objective analysis. Now it's much more about what people believe. Because again, I'm not convinced that human rights have had a, a deep impact on the way we live. I mean, I can go into more detail about how how I actually argue um, what what happened in the 1970s that was so crucial. But that that's sort of a a basic answer to wh- why the book changes so much between the first half and the second half. Jeez.
0: Um, right. that maybe you could explain a bit um, just about that sort of the relationship between the '60s utopianism <laughs>
1: and '70s human rights. Absolutely. So, so just continuing from where I left off. I mean, my, my I, I started out with 1968, um, and. I looked around, you know, that was the 20th anniversary year of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And yet, when we look at all the books about 1968, no one ever mentions the fact that the United Nations made it human rights year, celebrated the Universal Declaration, had a whole conference in Tehran um, to mark the 20th anniversary. And that's because there was so much else happening in 1968, um, you know, it's the year of these global uprisings, um, you know, very famous in French history, but, you know, marked American history pretty profoundly, um, you know, in, in Mexico City. Some major events took place even in East Asia. Um, and um, the ideological picture of 1968 is that it sparks a huge um kind of rebirth of utopian schemes in the West. In fact, if we look at at the secondary literature on the idea of utopia, it's all after 1968 that all the old utopian thinkers from Thomas More, but especially, you know, 19th century French utopian thinkers like uh, Saint simon and Charles Fourier and and American experiments like Brook Farm suddenly become interesting. so there there's a moment in 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 our recent ideological history when lots of people want to transform the imagination. Um, and And the basic argument of the last utopia is that they all fail, um, and that somehow human rights survives this this moment. When there are all of a sudden a ton of different utopianisms on offer to, um, you know, consumers of of ideologies and over the course of the 70s, um, just one survives or maybe a few um, like the environmental movement seems to be. A kind of parallel to human rights that um, draws on the creation of utopianism and and new social movements in the nineteen sixties, but sur- but weathers the storm in which all the rest of them, um, you know, don't, don't survive. And so that's the basic framework of the last utopia. It looks at this really surprising decade between the late sixties and the late seventies, by which time. Um, You know, politicians are saying that states have to obey human rights, and that's because of the success of human rights in establishing themselves at the level of social movements. So Amnesty International wins the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, Other major NGOs are founded like Human Rights Watch uh, and human rights have suddenly become. Um, kind of part of the lingua franca. In fact, if we study the history of language, we find that in English, very few people use the phrase human rights before about 1977, and that now it's on our lips. And so part of what I wanted to do is understand the dynamics in that crucial decade between the late 60s and the late 70s, in which suddenly human rights are part of the picture as they now are seemingly permanently.
0: Along with that sort of eclipsing of those um, utopian social movements, you also discuss the, a certain crisis of the Cold War, uh, Vietnam and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so on. And, and you, you do talk about Amnesty International as an original um, innovation in mm-hmm. political mm-hmm. strategy for a social movement. Um, could you Could you perhaps just touch on what you found so intriguing about Amnesty International in terms of its method and why right. that tells us something about the- both the Cold War and about human rights
1: absolutely i mean it it is a crucial organization because it was there first um, you know there there's possibly one prior um, human rights organization self-styled um, called the International League for the rights of man um, but it it doesn't have the same movement basis as amnesty the same grassroots ad- adherence and the same um, you know popular visibility for example it, it didn't win the Nobel Prize uh, amnesty international did so so the general account I give of this period from the 40s to the 1970s is that other things fail, not just between the the just at the level of kind of utopianism after 1968, but really across the Cold War period. So if we ask what's happening after World War Two and in, in the North Atlantic space, um, it seems to be that people um they're also accept the boundaries of the national. And the big debate is what kind of nation state are we going to have? And in particular, what kind of welfareism are we going to choose? Um, and the universal declaration, which registers all of these economic and social rights, really records belatedly this wartime consensus that Um, 19th century citizenship has to be abandoned and 20th century citizenship will involve economic uh, protection of some sort. Now, the West and the communist East differed profoundly about what would be entailed in that um, welfarism. But there there was a kind of strikingly broad consensus in the 40s that there would be some kind of turn to um, welfarist citizenship defined in some way or other. Um, and people bought into this, and that 's why they also bought into the 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 Cold War in the first couple of decades of it um, the The inference from from the the victory of welfareism seems to be seemed to be that we had to choose sides in this massive global battle about what kind of citizenship would would be required to to leave the nineteenth century and the great Depression behind, and would it be reform capitalism with social protection, or would it be full-blown communist socialism? Um, But by the 60s, people have lost their belief in choosing sides. Um, Of course, not completely. Um, The American case is is special within that, um, because while lots of American youth have lost their interest in the Cold War, they're also very angry about um, American imperialism and America's, you know, geopolitics, um, and in fact, there's a fantastic new book out by Barbara Keys um, called "Reclaiming American Virtue," which tells the American story in much more detail than I did, and really shows how human rights were a response to um, the crisis of American national self-confidence that the Vietnam War uh, brought about. In that, in this kind of general picture, then that I'm. I'm laying out Amnesty International emerges as as an alternative to the Cold War. And it turns out its founder, Peter Benenson, really did imagine it this way. Um, When he first comes on the scene, he was deeply marked by some of the Christian currents that we talked about before. He was born, uh, I mean, he was was ethnically Jewish. His parents had been Jewish, but he... Um, was a convert to Protestantism um, because of his parents, and then himself converted to Catholicism. Um, And he thought of human rights as a successor to socialism. He said, he looked out at the world in, in the late 50s and early 60s and said, people want a cause, but socialism has failed us. Um, And my general picture of human rights follows Benenson's insight. It basically says human rights appealed to a lot of people because they wanted clean hands. They were tired of a Cold War in which our idealism depended on endorsing a lot of violence on both sides. And what Amnesty um, Internationalism refused to do was endorse violence. Of course, it was... It was not like the rights claiming of the of the earlier tradition I talked about, the American and French revolutionary tradition where rights was were connected to violence. instead, if you joined Amnesty International, you adopted a, a suffering prisoner, you lit a candle, you wrote letters. All of this was clean mobilization. and I think it was powerful because it presented, an alternative politics at a time people were exhausted by inherited politics. So that's the basic story I tell.
0: Yeah, um, I, I was uh, thinking, you know, uh, that uh, the book, as you said, is so much about 1968 as a kind of that's the the turning point, really, or the axis around mm-hmm. which the story of human rights revolves, right. in a sense, in your argument. Um, I was, you know, you, you probably wisely, otherwise your book would go on and on, but you end around 77. Um, right which is that breakthrough year of human rights. But I could almost see the 80s and 90s being again a sort of further um, uh, shift away from utopianism with a big U towards a more uh, utopianism with a small U. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I was just thinking of an example of – I I went to university in the 80s, and and after I finished in 88, friends of mine were involved in a a group called ACT UP, which is the acronym Mm -hmm. for AIDS Mm -hmm. Coalition to Unleash Power. And right. it, was, it was vaguely anti-capitalist, anti-governmental, and uh, and then uh, I moved to San Francisco, and another group of friends were involved in a group with a really ugly acronym called IGLHERC. And <laughs> IGLHERC was the acronym for the International Gay Lesbian Human Rights Commission, uh, founded around 1990 or 91. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they sort of mark in my mind anyway, this, uh, you know, that sort of shift from this kind of liberationist mm-hmm. utopianism, mm-hmm. which act up. Um, embodied right. Um, right. to a kind of mild mannered, e- equality-focused advocacy right. group, um, which you know argues. I suppose you could follow it right into the contemporary debates over uh, you know the gay marriage and so on. Right, right, um, right. Um, it just struck me that there that, that there is something to that that the human rights yes. um, has not has an effectiveness that goes along with perhaps a certain. Uh, loss of of grand vision right, or of right. maximal aims, um, right, so that right. did make quite a um, quite a bit of sense to me. Um, moving, however, into this sort of uh, period that that is after your book, um, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, you don't you obviously don't talk about 1989 and the, and the shift right. that that uh, represented. Um, right. But in your in that essay that you mentioned, where you review Lind Hunt's book, you do talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. I suppose more of the pitfalls really of human rights right. from right. a political perspective. And um, you know, you don't mention, for instance, Francis Fukuyama and his argument about right. the end of history with mm-hmm. the end of the Cold War. Um, but in the in that article, you do mention uh, the connection between post Cold War, let's call it. Uh, imperialism, perhaps, or U.S. foreign mm-hmm, policy. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and, and the whole question is whether or not that ideal of, you know, the, that transnational universal utopia, uh, even how, however sober it might be that's in Amnesty International, for instance, you know, right. whether, whether or not that idea has been hijacked right. um, after 1989 right. Do you want to say something about that?
1: Absolutely. So, so I I, I sign on completely to you know your first reflection, and I, I just want to make clear that I'm you know I'm emphasizing this moment of the '60s and '70s, but of course we we probably find that this basic de-radicalizing dynamic, um, you know, lots of times in history, including. Um, you know, in, in our own time. And I I would never want to suggest that somehow after the sixties, there were never any grand politics. Um, although I would say that they, they, they tend to be much more marginal than, than they have been. Uh, I mean, they, they were prior to, um, you know, prior to the 1970s. Um, Look, you know, I I, I think the principal failing of the book is that it ends just when the story is getting interesting. Um, And in fact, lots of my, you know, writing now and in the future is going to be about human rights in our time. Um, I I, I would say, you know, in some ways, I made a pretty gross error by not, um, you know, focusing on on the 1990s, which are the era when, whatever the truth of my account about the 1970s, human rights really became a much more popular language than before, and clearly that's because of the end of the Cold War. Now, as I as I've implied in my earlier answers, we, we the the amazing thing is that we we can't, with a great deal of certainty, attach much causal um, force to all of these big discursive shifts. Um, you know, there are even historians who debate whether human rights um, were causally important in the end of communism. Um, you know, th- there's a big historical debate about that. Um, in our time, we we just know that human rights are central to the stigmatization of some states abroad. And, and that really follows their their origin in the 1970s when they their pioneering uses were against totalitarianism so called to the east and authoritarianism to the south and down to libya and syria today we we still use this idea to single out especially civilian suffering and organize around it Um, it's just not clear um whether it's it's a language that succeeds in protecting Um, and mobilizing support um, for the outcomes that make the world better off. We do know that states also started to use the idea of human rights in the 1970s, and now they all do with a vengeance. And the the fear there basically is that um, states use this language for their own ends. Um, You know, there's a famous German... Um, briefly Nazi legal theorist named Carl Schmidt who once very skeptically said whoever uses the claim of humanity is lying. Um, Now, that's very skeptical, but it's almost unfailingly the case that it turns out that states have particular interests, not always, but most of the time. And so, I think after 1989, many of us have learned to be very cautious about the use of the idea of humanity or the invocation of human rights in high politics. Because the language then gets bound up with great power dynamics. And yeah, I think there's no better illustration of that than the various um, – you know, wars that we've seen in the past couple of decades, the Iraq war, especially, but the, the Libyan intervention, the, the claim making that almost led, um, to the Syrian intervention. And so, um, what I think our task is as interested observers is to beware, um, to wonder why it is that human rights seem to not have had the same, um, Impact world historically as the nation state did, um, for better, sometimes for worse. Um, and to beware of human rights for their uses, not just by social movements, but by politicians um, in the public sphere.
0: Yeah. I, uh, related to that, I, I remember going to a talk by, I think his first name is Jacques Ranciere. You probably
1: know oh, him. Oh, yes. Of course. A French intellectual. Flex, yeah. French
0: intellectual. And he was, this was probably 2003 in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and he was sort of bemoaning the emergence of the whole philosophy of ethics, or let's say ethics right. as a popular uh, philosophical yes. ter- term and of the subject. Mm-hmm. And, and I was wondering also, he didn't mention human rights, but I could see that perhaps with uh, human rights and mm-hmm. ethics, um, one could make the argument, as Ranciere does, is that uh, in the absence of, of sort of old-fashioned political language, um, that these moral discourses um, appear and are perhaps you know, not able to um, – they, they, they can be perhaps more misused than political <laughs> language um, <laughs> by state forces. And that was effectively right. what he was arguing in the context right. of, the, uh, right. of right. the Gulf War. Right. Um, do, do you think there's anything um, uh, to that? About it? you do mention, as I said, the, the morality of this right. particular discourse. Um, one would hope it would protect the discourse, so to speak, from misuse. Right.
1: But perhaps it's the right. opposite. Right. I, I think I think you're raising a really important and and, and really intricate problem. Um, so, I mean, it, it's you know I don't know what Jacques Alcière said, but you know that the, it seems to me we can't dispense with normative dimensions to our claims um, you know there are some people out there who are nervous about morality sort of as such um, and but I'm not one of them um, and I think it's just the case that all all politics should should follow out from and be connected to um, claims in a moral register. Um, I think my my worry about human rights is that because it presents itself sort of as exclusively, moral norms it's not as as self conscious or self aware as it should be or could be about um, its inevitably political implications um, and and I think that that may make it more susceptible to misuse than other Languages. So just to take a comparison, if I'm a socialist at home, just hypothetically, of course, I have moral reasons for pursuing my politics, but um, I don't just make claims about, you know, the nature of man. I also have a political program, which is roughly about taking from the wealthy and giving from the, to the poor. And it's clear to everyone that that's a divisive political agenda. Um, in, in the human rights world, um, in part because of the movement and the regimes around it are so weak. Um, there's often a kind of over-reliance on the normative or moral, um, step in the, in, in the move from a kind of, um, you know, moral language to political consequences. So often, We're told that there's this moral norm that everyone agrees about or this international treaty that states have ratified um, as if um, the politics of 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 advancing some value or other were straightforward. So just to go back to the cases we talked about, um, these these humanitarian interventions, so-called, you know. Nobody doubts that it's important to protect victims or to, to care about their, their sometimes genocidal treatment. But it can't possibly follow from that that we take this or that step a, as a globe. I mean, clearly we would want to avoid doing nothing because the moral importance of suffering children in Syria sanctions? Do we mount an invasion? Well, these are all costly um, political choices that can't be authorized just by our belief in the importance of humanity. And so some of us just want to kind of restore the politics to human rights by making um, their advocates be more honest and explicit about how exactly we're going to get from the morality to the change in the world that we all want.
0: Very good. I will. I'll subscribe to that. Um, so as a sort of final point or, or a series of uh, points, um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, as you were an intellectual historian, um, uh, I am, I, I found this very fresh in the way that you approached uh, questions of causation and um, conceptual change. Um, I, I, I uh, you know, found also very good that you really follow, um, follow the money, so to speak. Follow the usage of the actual term human rights. So you, mm-hmm. you know, you don't look for human rights uh, where that term does not occur, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that that's a good, um, you know, a good guide if one is is engaged mm-hmm. in con- conceptual history, in particular, history of uh, philosophical and political concepts. Right. Um, so, you know there um just a, there were a few sort of uh, s- critiques that you make of of other ways of thinking about Mm-mm. why human rights have have appeared um and for instance you you seem to reject um notions of of let's say attributing everything to a type of paradigm shift um you know that would be for instance you know a, a, say a marxist model of uh, human rights as a term appearing with a new um, geopolitical constellation mm-hmm. um, a, a sort of cynical reading of human rights might be you know that it is a a form of neocolonial ideology right um, you know that would be say a cynical marxist reading that uses this notion of a kind of paradigm shift. you know another way would be maybe to think more about a sort of cuneian paradigm mm-hmm. shift you know the mm-hmm. epistemology changes mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason and and, you know, that's the cause of the emergence of human rights. And you also seem to to reject that. Um, some other sort of uh, things that float out there, um, which you don't necessarily go into in much detail, but there's this whole, you know, this idea of a genealogy of human rights, mm-hmm. a kind of Foucauldian mm-hmm. emergence through the, the kind of minor practices of power in some right. isolated location that then sort of percolate and, and reemerge in, in other frameworks, Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned the history of ideas, you know, great philosophers, master thinkers, right. Uh, all of those you draw on, but at the same time you, you're, um, you know, you in a sense reject all of those as adequate models for explaining the emergence Mm -hmm. of human rights. Um, you know, you emphasize contingency, experiment, um, surprise discovery, I suppose. There was one um, right. phrase. Uh, this is very typical. of Many phrases in the in the um, in the book, but you. Uh, this is from uh, some section, and you're talking about the emergence of human rights, mm-hmm. and you say, as time wore on, what was at first a strategy became a philosophy, mm-hmm. um, and that seems quite typical for your right. mode of, of explaining causation. Just, I wanted to open that up. Uh, Absolutely, you can take that anywhere you like.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's a great question, and and I wish I I had not embedded the the kind of theoretical perspective in the book so far as to you know lead me to 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 have difficulty with reconstructing it um, because I would say ultimately you know I'm, I'm impressed enough by some of the models you mentioned to to rely on them when they work, um, but um, because of the focus I adopted. I I I couldn't sign on to anyone, kind of globally, um, and I, and I just say that the the book came into focus for me in thinking less about philosophers, um, of whom there were very few, um, kind of uh, theorizing human rights per se, and focusing more on those who joined Amnesty International and those who since then have devoted their lives to, to this cause and thinking about what sort of actors um, were they? What, what were their um, philosophical but also existential presumptions? Um, and it's really that focus that guided me in the kind of large battlefield of contending theoretical approaches that you mentioned. So, I mean, I've already explained why um, a kind of history of ideas um, approach wouldn't work with this sort of actor, um, even though that's the approach in which I was trained and which I thought I would write about human rights. It, It just didn't seem to be adequate to the fact that first of all, there were no philosophical defenders uh, of of human rights until this movement had changed the world, at least imaginatively. Um, and then, then I, I I kind of considered or flirted with the other um, models you mentioned, um, kind of on the terms of of my own explanation of um, human rights activism and, and the moment through which these um sorts of people uh traveled. So um as I've I've already indicated, um I put so much emphasis on their imagination um and their 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 style of politics that it led me actually to be quite skeptical of a Marxist account where ideology follows practice. So um a a, a Marxist account um of at least a vulgar Marxist account of human rights might say something like well um you know post-war capitalism was changing um what we call fordism was in crisis neoliberalism was coming about that was quite hostile to the state um that was much more deterritorialized um and human rights ideology has sort of a, um causally abetted the victory of neoliberal capitalism. Um now there is a very powerful story to tell in that regard. I think especially since as I've said the national welfare state was the victor of World War II. Um but it doesn't seem to be a, what human rights are about now. Um human rights do seem deterritorialized. Um relative to their past. So that's all right about Marxism, but it just doesn't seem right to me that human rights activism can be explained as complicitous with some capitalist agenda. It just doesn't seem to me to fit the evidence. Um, In fact, my worry about human rights is that it's just remained imaginative and has had no effect of any kind whether for good or for ill. So that's that's more or less why I broke with, a, a say, a Marxist materialist um, sort of account. And actually, I've worked a fair bit more recently on, on that topic because it seems to me so interesting. Um, I would say I'm a bit closer to the Thomas Kuhn or Michel Foucault model of um, paradigm shift, although um, I think we'd have to, um, avoid any implication that they might have left that there's some vast rupture, um, and and we can't really explain the rupture because on the two sides of the divide there's just this kind of unintelligible gap. Um, this is what um, Foucault seemed to mean when he referred to a so-called epistemological rupture between paradigms or what he called epistemes. Um, Uh, And that seems to me, their approach seems to me very valuable, because it's very carefully historicist. It refuses to think in terms of eternal categories. And so I definitely slavishly followed them on that point. And they also were very good at emphasizing the contingent formation of things. Um, And I also very slavishly followed them on that point, Um, where I I think I, I departed from them is in trying to understand the logic by which um, certain forms of idealism were uh, dropped in favor of another kind through as part of the history of of an ex, of of experience and so my emphasis on activists is sort of about how they conclude that um, one form of activism, including say socialist or revolutionary activism, isn't working for them, and they look for Another kind of activism that will differ in experiential terms um, and I think that takes me um, to that quotation you read so it does seem to me right that the human rights emerged as a kind of experiential move with early human rights activists um, responding to very historically specific forces like the crisis of the left um, and and the crisis of of the nineteen sixty eight utopias. Um, and and what's been amazing to me is that th- that their version of 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 human rights has transcended its formative crucible. And so what I'm working on now is is really recent decades, which I left out of the book, and how we might think harder than I was able to do about the staying power of what began as a kind of experiential strategic move politically.
0: Well, that sounds like you've um, come to really the last topic that I was going to ask you today, which is um, you know tell us a bit more about what you mm-hmm. are working on. So, is this going to be a book or are these articles? What are you what are you thinking of?
1: Well, I, I've done a few kind of preliminary things, but I really do want to write a sequel, because in in the barrage of criticism I received for The Last Utopia, the, the kind of main criticism that seemed right to me is that it ended too soon. And so I do want to figure out what it would look like to write a, a history of human rights in our time, um, beyond the kind of sketchy pages of epilogue that I had in The Last Utopia to give that topic. Um, And in a way, I think I've had to change my analysis slightly. So The Last Utopia is really organized around explaining this breakthrough moment of the 1970s. And even the prior history is really um, conceptualized in ways that would make the contrast with the 1970s stand out, but as we've been saying, human rights are weren't just survivors from the 60s into the 70s, but are the great ideology of our time, and have manifested themselves in all sorts of ways. So I would never want to reduce human rights to just their role in humanitarian intervention. They do have. Um, a huge number of other manifestations, which I think we have to study carefully. And so, um, you know, my first, um, you know, entry in this is going to be to give some lectures this spring on this question of human rights and, and the history of capitalism to sort of look at what's powerful in Marxism and what's limited in Marxism, um, in ways that we've just been talking about. But that's really only going to be a promissory note for, a, a, a larger book, which will take many more years on the history of human rights. So the the ideal is to write a sequel to The Last Utopia, but what it will look like, I'm very unsure.
0: Excellent. Well, um, Sam, I want to thank you for giving us so much of your time. Thank you. And um, I found the conversation fascinating, just as fascinating as the book. Um, and I, I certainly look forward to the sequel. Um, Thanks very much. And uh, perhaps we could talk another time about some of your other work. I I know you did an edited volume recently on uh, international aspects of of, uh, intellectual history. That's true. Um, Perhaps something could also be subject of a conversation. Another time. I look forward to it. Well, thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Todd.